Hi everyone, welcome to the August 2021 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. It's episode 30 this month, yay! Not sure that really means anything, but I guess it's nice to have something to get a bit excited about every now and then. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and this month I set foot in the office for the first time since March 2020. Obviously, it was great to see some colleagues that I hadn't seen in person for 16 months, but to be honest, I was most excited about two things. Air conditioning during the hottest week of the year, and the chance to retrieve an Easter egg that had inadvertently got locked in a cupboard just before the start of lockdown. I'm sure you'll agree I've got my priorities in the right order. Coming up later, we've got a discussion about setting dependence assumptions with Andy Harding and Richard Thornley, but first, we've got some news to get through. The DWP is consulting on draft regulations that will implement the new authorisation and supervision regime for collective DC schemes. Just as a reminder, CDC is a new type of scheme that sits somewhere between your traditional DB and DC schemes. So you have fixed contributions being paid in each year, like a DC scheme. But unlike a DC scheme, the assets are pulled together rather than being held in individual accounts, and members build up a target inflation-linked pension rather than a pot of money. The word target's important here. This isn't a DB scheme, and CDC pensions aren't guaranteed. They need to be reviewed each year, and the increases applied could be higher or lower than expected, depending on experience. There's even the possibility that adverse experience could lead to pensions being reduced in some cases. The Pension Schemes Act provided a framework for CDC schemes earlier this year, but these new regulations will fill in some of the detail around things like applying for authorisation, the process for valuations and benefit adjustments, disclosures, member protection and transfers. For now, the focus is on single-employer and connected multi-employer CDC schemes, but the Pensions Minister is keen to widen the scope to cover other structures later on. This consultation runs until the 31st of August, and we're then expecting the first CDC scheme to be in place by 2022. The Pensions Regulator will be responsible for authorising and supervising CDC schemes, and they'll be consulting separately on a new code of practice and guidance at a later date. In case you were hoping it had gone away, here's a little reminder that GMP equalisation is still a thing. The GMP Equalisation Working Group has published a guidance note on GMP conversion, which fills a bit of a void left by a lack of further guidance or legislation from the DWP and HMRC. The guidance aims to show how schemes can use conversion in a proportionate and pragmatic way by setting out examples of approaches that have either already been adopted or are being considered. Our analysis shows that around half of schemes that have made a decision in principle are planning to use the conversion approach for GMP equalisation. We think this guidance should make it easier for these trustees to make informed decisions, but it's quite technical and 68 pages long, so it may be more useful for advisors than lay readers. Just a couple of notes of caution. Firstly, this isn't a definitive guide, so other approaches not mentioned in the guidance could be equally acceptable. Secondly, the guidance is designed to support schemes using conversion on its own, and it doesn't directly cover all the issues that will be faced by the significant minority of schemes planning to combine conversion with a pension increase exchange exercise. This is a complex issue, so we'd always recommend that schemes seek actuarial and legal advice specific to their circumstances throughout their GMP equalisation project. The government's introducing measures to encourage people with DC pensions to make better informed retirement choices by increasing take-up of pension-wise guidance. Schemes are already required to signpost members towards pension-wise and encourage them to seek appropriate pension guidance, but take-up remains low. The DWP has therefore launched a consultation, yes, another one, on new regulations that would strengthen the requirements for trust-based DC schemes. 
They're describing this as a stronger nudge, and they must really like this term as it's capitalised in the consultation. Where a member applies to start receiving benefits or transfer their pension rights to another DC arrangement, trustees would be required to explain the nature and purpose of PensionWise guidance and facilitate the booking of a PensionWise appointment. Trustees would also need to check that the members either received guidance or actively opted out before the application can proceed. I'm not sure if PensionWise actually has the capacity to deal with all these extra appointments, but hopefully someone's already given that some thought. This consultation runs until the 3rd of September, with the new regs expected to apply from the 6th of April next year. Similar rules are also expected to apply for personal pension providers, but there was a separate consultation on that earlier this year. A few quick ESG stories this month. First up, the PLSA is seeking views on a new Responsible Investment Quality Mark, which would be intended to recognise pension schemes that meet the highest standards for incorporating ESG factors across their operations. There are a total of seven standards that schemes would be assessed against. I won't go into all the detail here, but if you're keen to provide input on this, you can find all the details on the PLSA's website, and they're taking comments until the 3rd of September. On a related note, the trustee chairs of 14 pension schemes with over £250 billion of assets between them are signed up to a net zero pledge coordinated by the Prince of Wales's Accounting for Sustainability project. The pledge states that the signatories recognise the scale of the transition needed and the challenges climate presents for governments, business and society, and they've also committed to taking specific actions over the next 12 months. Rumours that His Royal Highness will be joining us in a future episode to talk about this are entirely unfounded. Make My Money Matter have also launched a new campaign this month encouraging people to move to green pension investments with the rather eye-catching statistic that this is 21 times more effective at cutting carbon footprints than the combined effect of giving up flying, becoming a vegetarian and switching to a renewable energy provider. Moving on to TPR, they're consulting on guidance and monetary penalties policy relating to the governance and reporting of climate-related risks and opportunities, so that's the TCFD stuff. Um, The guidance describes what trustees will need to do and report on in their annual TCFD report, and it sets out some examples of the steps that TPR expects trustees to take. On penalties, there will be mandatory fines where the TCFD report isn't published on a freely available website within the required time frame. These will start at 2,500 or 5,000 for schemes that have got a professional trustee in place. These consultations run until the 31st of August. And last but maybe not least, the Chancellor has announced plans for another set of sustainability disclosure requirements. It's not clear how these will interact with the TCFD rules, but the Treasury suggested that this will bring together and streamline existing climate reporting requirements. So hopefully this won't just increase the burden schemes are already facing. And finally, a couple of updates on fraud and pension scams. The Pensions Research Accountants Group and PASA have both published guidance notes on fraud for UK pension schemes this month. These cover the different types of fraud that can affect the pensions sector and the range of tactics that schemes can adopt to counter this. I've mentioned in previous episodes that the Work and Pensions Committee has been running a three-part inquiry into the impact of pension freedoms and the protection of pension savers. So the government's now responded to the first part of this inquiry, which was on pension scams, and what more can be done to prevent them. The government's rejected the committee's recommendation to use the online safety bill to tackle fraud facilitated through paid-for advertising, and instead they'll be consulting later this year on how online advertising is regulated. And if you'd like more information on this, or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end.
I've been involved in setting demographic assumptions for DB schemes for longer than I care to admit. And in reality, while there are a whole range of different assumptions to make, it's normally mortality that tends to steal the limelight. However, things are changing and we're starting to see more focus on some of the other assumptions, particularly those relating to dependence. While I know a bit about this subject, Andy Harding and Richard Thornley know a lot more than me, which is why I've wrote them in today for a chat. Before we get started, can I just ask you guys to briefly introduce yourselves? Thanks, Ricky. So I'm Andy. I'm an actuary in Aeon's Demographic Horizons team, which is our specialist research team that helps clients keep on top of demographic trends and assess the characteristics of their pension scheme members. Uh, for example, how long they're likely to live, uh, how many of them are likely to be married, and how much younger or older the spouses are than the members themselves. And I lead Aeon's research on the marital assumptions aspects, which is the focus of today's podcast, as Ricky said. Hi, I'm Richard Thornley. I'm also an actuary in our Demographic Horizons team, um, so I specialise in advice on demographic assumptions, but I've also got a breadth of experience advising trustees and corporates on a wide range of other issues, and I've worked closely with Andy on Aeon's research into marital assumptions. Thanks, guys. So, Andy, can you just start us off with some background on why these marital assumptions are important and why people have started paying more attention to them recently? Sure. Well, fundamentally, it's because defined benefit pension schemes typically pay survivor pensions to the spouses of members after they've died. In fact, survivor benefits are often payable to a wider class of dependents than just legal spouses or civil partners. It's common for unmarried partners with some financial dependence on the member to be eligible as well, depending on the precise wording of the scheme rules. Um, at any rate, to value these pensions, uh, schemes need to know what proportion of members have a qualifying dependent and the age difference between members and their dependents since the younger partners are likely to live longer and so receive their pension for longer and that affects uh, every aspect of the scheme's finances from its funding valuations to transfer values and accounting disclosures but it's been brought into focus in recent years for two main reasons so firstly declining interest rates have increased the value of these survivor pensions relative to the nearer term pensions that are payable to the members themselves before they die um, and secondly, pension schemes are increasingly focused on long-term funding, including the use of insurance solutions such as bulk annuities to hedge demographic and financial risks. And if you're in an irrevocable transaction of that kind, it's vital to value the liabilities accurately to ensure the premium represents value for money. And when I start talking to trustees about this, I guess one of the first things they'll tend to ask is, don't we already have this data on our admin records? That's uh, a fair question. <laughs> it's, uh, yes and no, I think is the answer. So schemes do usually record members' marital details at set points, for example, at retirement or at death, um, to check whether a survivor pension is actually due to come into payment. Um, and there might be some updates from members in the meantime if they choose to contact the administrator to say their circumstances have changed. But that's really on the initiative of the individual, so the information is quite patchy. I think the bottom line is there doesn't tend to be reliable current recording of who has a qualifying dependent on admin systems. And if we don't have that reliable data, what about just using, say, national statistics to set these dependence assumptions? Yes, it's possible to look at national statistics. So a key source of data in the UK is the census that takes place every 10 years where people provide information on their household and marital characteristics amongst a range of other things. Um, in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, an updated census was carried out earlier this year, of course, in March. Um, though the results have yet to be released and Scotland's due to follow suit next year. Um, that, that is quite useful data as it gives you a, a high level picture of marital proportions um, by age and by sex for a very large, credible data set. It is important to keep track of changes between censuses because they're only every 10 years to ensure you've got an up-to-date picture. Marriage and cohabitation rates have been changing over time, so you do need to 
uh, keep keep track of uh, how things move in between. And there are other publications released by the Office for National Statistics um, for the country as a whole that can help with this. But even if you do that, it's quite a blunt instrument because it only tells you what's happening at a national level. And you tend to find that the members in defined benefit pension schemes aren't representative as a subset of the country as a whole because it's only people with certain kinds of employment history that have ended up in those schemes. And the members who've built up the biggest pensions tend to be particularly unrepresentative because you're selecting for the most affluent individuals with the highest salaries, which in itself tends to be correlated with the chance of being married. So what that means is the uh, national averages can be a pretty poor guide to marital characteristics of pension schemes in particular. That's something we've actually seen in pension scheme data uh, where we've analysed it for clients at Aon. And, uh, and the upshot is you really need to look at marital data for pension schemes, not just the country as a whole. In fact, it goes a bit further than that because um, there is significant variation in marital proportions between schemes with different characteristics. So, for example, from different employers or industries, according to the socioeconomic profile of the membership, our research has indicated that affluent pensioners, so the most, most affluent, most well-off um, pensioners are up to 30% more likely to be married than less affluent pensioners, which is a pretty big gap. And that's about 6% in pension liability value terms. So really, really need to worry about that too. Yeah, no, that does sound pretty significant. So Richard, I just wanted to pick up on something Andy mentioned earlier about when you get reliable data on dependents. Big schemes with a mature enough pensioner population could have quite a lot of data built up about past deaths and what proportion of those gave rise to a dependents pension. Is that useful when it comes to setting these assumptions? Yes, yeah, so you're right. That that data often is recorded and it can be um, pretty useful in predicting how many current members have a dependent, but you've got to be quite careful when using the data. Um, the challenge you face is that the profile of the current members will be quite different potentially to the profile of those who've died in the past. You know, For a start, they'll likely be younger, but actually they might also be more or less affluent than um, those who've died in the past, just depending, for example, on things like how the workforce might have changed over time. We've also done some research at Aon that's found that married members tend to live longer than single members. And actually, the difference can be pretty significant. If you take the example of a 60-year-old man, then death rates are around 50% lower for men who are married than for those who aren't. And these differences mean that the data are from past deaths, you know, the records the administrators have, will tend to be skewed towards those people who were unmarried um, because those are the people who were more likely to die. Um, so if you just look at how many previous deaths gave rise to a dependent's pension, you will tend to understate the proportion of current members who have a dependent. Now, that doesn't mean that experience data can't be used. It can be used, but you do need to adjust for those profile differences. If you don't do that, you're likely to significantly underestimate the proportion of current members who have a dependent. And we've seen a few real life examples of that, cases where assumptions have been based on past experience without adjustment. And then later on, when data about actual current status is obtained, um, the previous assumptions have turned out to have understated liabilities, you know, by 2% or more in some cases. And you mentioned data about actual marital status there, but where does that come from if schemes don't already hold it? Are we talking about writing out directly to members to ask for this? Yeah, that, that's right. So that's the simplest and perhaps the most obvious way of um, finding out who's married. Um, it's also expensive, though, writing directly to all members. And so pension schemes will tend to only consider that if they're thinking about securing benefits with an insurer. I guess the other point to consider about writing to members directly is that not everyone will respond. So you still need a way of coming up with an assumption for those who don't respond to the survey. 
Now, we might be tempted to think you could just look at the average rates for those who did respond. But what we've seen is that those who have a dependent tend to be more likely to respond to a survey than those who don't. And that's perhaps because they see it as more relevant to themselves. You know, they might have a worry about whether their dependent will get paid a pension after their death. And so all that means that responses tend to be biased towards those who have dependents. Now, how biased they are can depend on factors such as precisely how the survey was worded. But if you don't correct for the bias, then you, you do risk overstating liabilities by as much as 2%. So we've talked about surveys, experience analysis and national statistics. What other options are out there? So another useful tool is tracing, and that's when a third-party provider predicts each individual member's marital status using a range of data sources that are available to them. Now, they do this without contacting the members themselves, which means it's usually quicker and cheaper than actually doing a, a survey, you know, writing to members. Now, what you get back from the trace exercise are a series of trace codes, one for each member, and that might be something like married or cohabiting. Now, the codes are predictions rather than definitive statements of marital status, and how reliable they are depends on which provider um, is being used. But if you've analysed data for a large group for whom you've got both tracing results and survey results, then it's possible to work out how to convert those trace codes into marital assumptions, and then you can apply that knowledge to, to other pension schemes. And once you can do that, then tracing results do become a very reliable way of determining marital assumptions. There is one final tool you can use, which is membership profiling. And this links back to Andy's earlier comments about the different factors affecting marital assumptions. Um, by understanding the influence these factors have, you can come up with a profiling model, which is a way of setting assumptions based on member characteristics, such as age, affluence, gender, and postcode, i.e. where someone lives. Um, now, this kind of model isn't quite as reliable as having survey or tracing data, but it is a lot more accurate than just using national statistics or even statistics based on pension schemes in general. So it's therefore very useful if a scheme wants some reasonable estimate of assumptions, but doesn't want to carry out a survey or tracing. And it can also help fill the gaps for any members who didn't respond to a survey or couldn't be successfully traced in a tracing exercise. Thanks, Richard. So Andy, if I can just come back to you to wrap things up, what would you say are the key takeaways for our listeners on this? I think there are two key points. Uh, firstly, this stuff matters. It can be really material to pension scheme liabilities, um, both for ongoing fund evaluations, but especially if you're looking at a transaction, like buying a bulk annuity where hard cash is changing hands. But secondly, the good news is there's plenty of tools at your disposal to get a really good handle on dependent assumptions by looking at surveys or tracing alongside data from recent past deaths and postcode profiling, as Richard mentioned. And in fact, if you have a combination of these independent data sources, it can help provide additional comfort that your assumptions are robust overall. Well, hopefully that's helped any listeners who are wondering why they should care about this and what they can do about it. So thanks very much to both of you for your time today. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks, Ricky. Right, that's all for today. So thanks again to my guests, Richard Thornley and Andy Harding, and thanks to you for listening. Assuming eating chocolate that's over a year past its best before date doesn't have any serious health consequences, I'll be back with more next month. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.